The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Chapter 3 on Horsel Common. Brought to you by Public Domain Playhouse, your source of the great works of antiquity today in the teleplay. That's right. Thank you for joining us at Public Domain Playhouse. I'm your narrator and guide, Bart, and I'm here to walk us through a little bit of what H.G. Wells was going through when he wrote War of the Worlds. So it's kind of interesting the fact that it's considered invasion literature. It's kind of interesting the fact that it was written at the time of history that it was. But what was Wells like in his early life? Well, Herbert George Wells, he was born at Atlas House, 162 High Street in Bromley, Kent, on September 21st, 1866. He was called Bertie by his family, and he was the fourth and last child of a woman who was a domestic servant, Sarah, and Joseph, her husband, who was a former domestic gardener and at the time a shopkeeper and professional cricketer. The family did their best to make money with a little shop that they had selling sporting goods and china. <laughs> it's kind of an odd combination, but I guess it kind of fit the family. Sporting goods and china. But uh, one of the interesting defining incidents in young Wells' life was an accident in 1864. He was eight years old. It left him bedridden with a broken leg. And to pass the time, he began to read books from the local library brought to him by his father. He was, his favorites, he soon became devoted to other worlds and lives to which books gave him access. So they stimulated him. They stimulated his desire to write. Later that same year, he entered Thomas Morley's Commercial Academy, which was a private school founded in 1849. The teaching is erratic and curriculum mostly focused. Wells later said, I'm producing copperplate handwriting and doing the sort of sums useful to tradesmen. Wells continued at that academy until 1880, and in 1877, his father suffered a fractured thigh. The accident effectively put an end to Joe's career as a cricketer, and his subsequent earnings as a shopkeeper weren't enough to compensate for the loss of the primary source of the family income. So, no longer able to support themselves financially, the family instead sought to place their sons as apprentices in various occupations. Interesting, you could sell your children back then. So, what was, what was Wells sold into? From 1880 to 1883, Wells had an unhappy apprenticeship, go figure, as a draper at the South Sea Drapery Emporium, Hyde. Um, his experience at Hyde's, where he worked a 13-hour day and slept in a dormitory with other apprentices, later inspired his novel The Wheels of Chance, The History of Mr. Polly, and Kipps, which portray the life of a draper's apprentice, as well as providing a critique of society's distribution of wealth. That could be one of the reasons why later on Wells becomes a devout socialist, which we talk about in another episode. Unfortunately, Wells' parents had a turbulent marriage and it was owing primarily to his mother's being a Protestant and his father's being a free thinker. When his mother returned to work as a lady's maid, 
One of the conditions of work was that she would not be permitted to have living space for her husband and children. Therefore, she and Joseph lived separate lives, though they never divorced and remained faithful to each other. As a consequence, Herbert's personal troubles increased as he subsequently failed as a draper and also later as a chemist's assistant. However, Upark had a magnificent library in which he immersed himself reading many classics, including Plato's Republic, Thomas More's Utopia, and the works of Daniel Defoe. This was the beginning of Wells's venture into literature. Where does it go from there? Well, you'll have to tune in to the next chapter, but currently we are on Chapter 3 on Horsel Commons. Thank you very much again for joining us. I'm getting ready to jump right into it. I hope you appreciate what we're doing. Feel free to leave comments. Um, would love to know whether or not um, this is landing at all. So I really do appreciate reading to you. It's one of my favorite things to do. I hope in some way that it entertains or allows you to relax while you listen to some of the greats. War of the Worlds. It's a classic. As you recall, if you were with me for chapter two, if you were with us for if you were with us for chapter two, you may recall that uh, many people end up seeing a falling star one Thursday night. Um, Ogilvy, the uh, man at the observatory, goes out to find the meteorite, which he thinks is somewhere on the common near Horsell. What's a common? I don't know. Uh, in this case, I think it's a public park. Or, actually, if you Google Horsel Common, it is indeed a real place. You can check it out for yourself. Ogilvy finds the meteorite in a crater. What are the odds, you know? This is, uh, you know, that's usually where somebody finds a meteorite. But this meteorite is still a little strange. It's cylindrical, and it makes some noise. Then it starts to open. That's the really strange part. Ogilvy realizes that the cylinder is hollow and it's full of people. Ah! He thinks they're dying from the heat and in a somewhat heroic move, goes to open the cylinder, but unfortunately the cylinder is too hot to touch. So Ogilvy runs into town to get help, but he looks a little crazy and he sounds a little batty. So he's ignored by a guy driving a cart and he's almost locked inside a pub by someone else who thinks he's crazy, but... Third time's a charm. He tells his neighbor, the journalist Henderson, about this amazing thing, and Henderson actually listens. It's kind of funny. Um, the little meeting between him and Henderson, if you might recall, uh, shows that H.G. Wells had a sense of humor, albeit a very dry English sense of humor. Because when Ogilvy tells Henderson that there's something inside the, uh, the artificial cylinder, Henderson says, What's that? We might expect to hear him say, what? Because it's such amazing news. But actually, he's saying, what? Because he's partly deaf, if you recall. If you're British, you might think that's a little bit funny. So Ogilvy and Henderson now are running around um, after seeing the cylinder, but they still can't help at the cylinder, so they run back into town together. But, you know, it's two guys looking pretty crazy, running around yelling about a meteorite. So the narrator asks us to imagine these two guys running around in a town while townsfolk mostly go about their ordinary lives, which 
you know, since we're not from the 1890s, it might be a little bit hard for us to imagine what ordinary means. But if you're really interested, you can visit the BBC's Victorians website to find out. Henderson goes to wire the news to London, and some of the locals go to see the, quote, dead men from Mars. Dead men from Mars! <laughs> sorry. Which is what people are calling, uh, saying what the cylinder is, dead men from Mars. At least the humans got it half right. Dead? No. From Mars? Yes. The narrator hears about this story and rushes off to see for himself, which is kind of an interesting literary device. So that's where we are, and that's how we find ourselves now in Chapter 3 on Horsel Common. Thanks again for joining me, and a big shout-out to Shmoop, shmoop shmoop.com is where I get most of my read-throughs on the stories that I'm bringing to you. I like the sense of humor that they have, and they've now just actually integrated video, which is pretty cool. If you ever need to get the skinny on a famous work of fiction, look them up. Schmoop.com Chapter 3 on Horsel Common. I found a little crowd of perhaps twenty people surrounding the huge hole in which the cylinder lay. I have already described the appearance of that colossal bulk embedded in the ground. The turf and gravel about it seemed charred, as if by a sudden explosion. No doubt, its impact had caused a flash of fire. Henderson and Ogilvy were not there. I think they perceived that nothing was to be done for the present, and had gone away to breakfast at Henderson's house. There were four or five boys sitting on the edge of the pit, with their feet dangling and amusing themselves, until I stopped them by throwing stones at the giant mass. After I had spoken to them about it, they began playing at touch in and out of the group of bystanders. Among these were a couple of cyclists, a jobbing gardener I employed sometimes, a girl carrying a baby, Greg the butcher and his little boy, and two or three loafers and golf caddies who were accustomed to hang about the railway station. There was very little talking. Few of the common people in England had anything but the vaguest astronomical idea in those days. Most of them were staring quietly at the big table, like the end of the cylinder, which was still as Ogilvy and Henderson had left it. I fancy the popular expectation of a heap of charred corpses was disappointed at this inanimate bulk. Some went away while I was there, and other people came. I clambered into the pit and fancied I heard a faint movement under my feet. The top had certainly ceased to rotate. It was only when I got thus close to it that the strangeness of this object was at all evident to me. At the first glance, it was really no more exciting than an overturned carriage or or a tree blown across the road. Not so much so, indeed. It looked like a rusty gas float, 
It required a certain amount of scientific education to perceive that the gray scale of the thing was no common oxide, that the yellowish-white metal that gleamed in the crack between the lid and the cylinder had an unfamiliar hue. Extraterrestrial had no meaning for most of the onlookers. At that time, it was quite clear in my own mind that the thing had come from the planet Mars, but I judged it improbable that it contained any living creature. I thought the unscrewing might be automatic. In spite of Ogilvy, I still believed that there were men in Mars. My mind ran fancifully on the possibilities of its containing manuscript, on the difficulties in translation that might arise, whether we should find coins and models in it, and so forth. Yet it was little too large for assurance on this idea. I felt an impatience to see it opened. About eleven, as nothing seemed happening, I walked back, full of such thought, to my home in Mayberry, but I found it difficult to get to work upon my abstract investigations. In the afternoon, the appearance of the common had altered very much. The early editions of the evening papers had startled London with enormous headlines. A message received from Mars. Remarkable story from Woking. And so forth. In addition, Ogilvy's wire to the Astronomical Exchange had roused every observatory in the Three Kingdoms. There were half a dozen flies or more from the Woking stations standing in the road by the sand pits. A basket chaise from Chobham and a rather lordly carriage. Besides that, there was quite a heap of bicycles. In addition, a large number of people must have walked, in spite of the heat of the day, from Woking to Chertsey, so that there was altogether quite a considerable crowd, one or two gaily dressed ladies among the others. It was glaringly hot, not a cloud in the sky nor a breath of wind, and the only shadow was that of a few scattered pine trees. The burning heather had been extinguished, but the level ground towards Ottershaw was blackened as far as one could see, and still giving off vertical streamers of smoke. An enterprising sweet-stuff dealer in the Chotham Road had sent up his son with a barrow-load of green apples and ginger beer. Going to the edge of the pit, I found it occupied by a group of about a half-dozen men, Henderson Ogilvy, and a tall, fair-haired man that I afterwards learned was Stent, the Astronomer Royal, with several workmen wielding spades and pickaxes. Stent was giving directions in a clear, high-pitched voice. He was standing on the cylinder, which was now evidently much cooler. His face was crimson and streaming with perspiration, and something seemed to have irritated him. A large portion of the cylinder had been uncovered, though its lower end was still embedded. As soon as Ogilvy saw me among the staring crowd on the edge of the pit, he called to me to come down and asked me if I would mind going over to see Lord Hilton, the lord of the manor. The growing crowd, he said, was becoming a serious impediment to their excavations, especially the boys. They wanted a light railing put up and helped to keep the people back. He told me that a faint stirring was occasionally still audible within the case, but that the workmen had failed to unscrew the top, as it afforded no grip to them. The case appeared to be enormously thick, 
and it was possible that the faint sounds we heard represented by a noisy tumult in the interior. I was very glad to do as he asked, and so become one of the privileged spectators within the contemplated enclosure. I failed to find Lord Hilton at his house, but I was told he was expected from London by the six o'clock train from Waterloo, and as it was then about a quarter past five, I went home, had some tea, and walked up to the station to waylay him. And that's it for chapter three on Horsel Common. Apparently the workmen are getting busy trying to dig the cylinder out of the ground. Hey, there's a steaming cylinder that was shot here from Mars that's half embedded in the earth and half sticking out. We think part of it was unscrewing. Let's dig it out. <laughs> Is that some kind of a, a uh, statement on the dumbness of humanity? Like I said, who knows what's inside that cylinder at this point. We are going to find out in the next chapter, chapter four, the cylinder opens. Finally, all our answers will be given. We will know exactly what's inside that cylinder, be it whipped cream or cheese whiz or some other kind of cylindrically held substance. Thanks again for joining me. Um, It's been a real pleasure to read to you The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Book 1, The Coming of the Martians, Chapter 3 on Horsel Common. Boy, is that a mouthful. Join us next time for Book 1, The Coming of the Martians, Chapter 4, The Cylinder Opens. (laughs) Join us for The Cylinder Opens and let's check out and see what happens. And we'll discuss a little bit more about uh, H.G. Wells and figure out uh, how he ended up becoming one of the most celebrated science fiction writers of all time. Thanks again for joining me. As always, we'll see you in the next chapter.